Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, our Savior. Help us to think his thoughts after him. Help us to think of our lives in light of and in keeping with the truth of your word. So that when we suffer, when we sin, when we feel the weight of the brokenness all around us fall on us, we know that you will ever keep us and never forsake us because you love us and you sent your own son for us. He will not fail. So Father, we pray that as a part of your great mission, the preaching of your word this morning might ever conform us to the image of Christ. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the staples of Christmas in the Burke household is the 1964 television special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. How many of you remember this one? Maybe you still watch it. Burl Ives, uh, the claymation or stop-motion animation thing that they did used to be so popular back in the 60s. Well, if you watch that thing today, I'm just curious, how many of you watched it this year? Anybody? Okay, we got a, a little smattering of hands. If you watch that thing today, you can definitely tell that it's from another era. Uh, it is one of the most politically incorrect, non-woke pieces of pop culture that is still in circulation. At one point, Rudolph's dad, Donner, decides he's going to go out and try to find his long-lost son, Rudolph. Mrs. Donner says, I want to go with you. And he says, no, this is man's work. So she, she retreats back into the cave, doesn't go with him. Santa Claus at the North Pole, he, he's, he, he runs the North Pole a little bit like he's uh, one of, uh, like the bully from a really bad teen movie from the 80s. You may think I'm overstating this a little bit, but if, if you watch this, it, it's a little, it's, it's kind of sad because anybody at the North Pole who's a little bit different, who doesn't kind of go with the flow of things, gets belittled. You, they might even get alienated from their families and even really the whole community. And when it comes out that Rudolph has a shiny red nose, his father Donner is embarrassed of him and he he assures Santa when he comes by to see his newborn, he says, I'm sure he's going to grow out of this. He's just completely hum humiliated. And you'll remember how Santa replies, well, Donner, you really should accept your son as a gift. No, that's not what Santa says. Uh, Santa says, well, I hope he, grow, you know, he better grow out of it or he's never going to lead my sleigh. Which basically saying, you know, you're never going to you know, be on my team, you little freak. Um, it's just, it's, it's really bad. You watch it now and it's, it's, it's like, what's going on here? And so, but, but the whole story here is about Rudolph's solidarity with other creatures who've been alienated from their communities because they're a little bit different. There's Herbie the elf who doesn't like to make toys, but he likes to, he wants to do what? He wants to be a dentist, right? Then you've got the entire island of misfit toys, the little squirt gun that doesn't shoot water, but jelly, you know, I mean, they, they don't work right. 
And so, and Ru Rudolph and Herbie eventually go and join the sad toys in exile. And by the end of the program, the prejudices against Rudolph and Herbie and the misfit toys, they get resolved. Nevertheless, the story still rings true when you watch it because we all know that the real world is a place where prejudices often reign supreme. And the real world is a place where prejudices often don't get resolved at the end. Now, I learned this the hard way at a very early age. When I was going into the fourth grade, my, my family and I moved to a new town in East Texas. It was a tiny town right on the Sabine River at the border between Louisiana and Texas. And it was immediately apparent my first day of school, I didn't fit in with the kids at the school. We had moved from a town in Texas that was about 5,000 people to this smaller town in East Texas that was probably 1,000 people or, or less. And the kids just let me know that I didn't fit in. They, they called me city slicker. <laughs> um, they called me city slicker. And there was one boy who was talking about a wasp's nest. And he said something about a waltz nest. And I just moved to town. I said, what? I said a waltz nest? And I, I literally just didn't know what he he was saying, and he turned around, he just punched me right in the nose um, for, for not understanding him and, and repeating what he said. He punches me right in the nose, and immediately, it was the first time I'd ever been punched in the nose in my life. If you've ever been punched in the nose, you know that smell uh, that you feel? So it was the first time, and I was completely shocked, completely unprepared for it, didn't even see it coming. So what, what I'm saying is, is that we all know that the real world is filled with these kinds of prejudices and hatred. And the older you get, the higher the stakes get. You can get excluded and alienated from a family or from a community or a workplace for completely prejudicial, unjust reasons. Um, we know that the world is like this. But what if the church were like this? Oh, the, the Bible really does teach about this thing called church discipline, where it is appropriate from time to time that you would remove somebody from the fellowship of the church. The old-timey uh, word for it is excommunication. But what if churches wielded this grave power based on invidious discrimination and prejudice? So, you know, you're not the right color, you're out. Um, you're not from our region, you're not from Louisville or Kentucky or this part of town, you're out. No Yankees allowed. You ever get accused of committing a sin? You're banished simply on the base of the accusation, basis of the accusation, and we kind of don't like you. We were looking for a reason to get rid of you anyway. No evidence or due processes for people we don't like. We just kick them out based on the allegation alone. How would you like to be a part of a church like that? Sometimes exclusion is necessary in a church, but Paul says that when a congregation must exclude, it must do so in a way that is fair and just and infused, not infused actually, with partiality. So if you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. Now, since the beginning of 2 Corinthians in chapter 10, Paul has been confronting the congregation about their adherence to, influenced by, false teachers. 
these teachers have called Paul's integrity into question in order to elevate themselves. And Paul says in chapter 11, verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So you've got some people who've actually, they're, they're being swayed by these false teachers, but the false teachers are, are, are there. And he says that they're, they're doing some pretty awful things. And so Paul has had to reassert his own apostolic bona fides before the congregation in order to get them reconnected to the message of Christ. But still, there's evidence that under the sway of false teachers, at least some people in the congregation remain skeptical of Paul. And you can tell that by the way that he's writing to them. And so in the passage before us this morning, Paul is warning them that he's coming for his third visit to Corinth. And he says if he finds any of them in rebellion once he gets there, he says he's not going to spare them from discipline, meaning he's, he's going to deal with them once and for all. And so it has kind of an ominous tone to it. And that may lead to excommunication. But that excommunication is not going to be based on prejudice, but on God's righteous instructions for discipline within the church. And so in four verses here, what we're going to see is Paul explain to them the process for discipline in verses 1 through 2, and then the reason for discipline in verses 3 through 4. So the process for discipline in verses 1 and 2, the reason for discipline in verses 3 to 4. So first of all, the process for discipline Everybody look at verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now hold right there. Some commentators say that Paul is not actually announcing an actual third visit, but merely the third time that he's planning to visit. Um, I don't think that's the correct uh, view of this. We know that Paul's first visit was the one that we witnessed in Acts chapter 18 where he comes to Corinth for the first time, preaches the gospel, a lot of people get saved. It's the founding visit where he founds the church there. Um, Paul also mentions, though, in this letter, a sorrowful visit to Corinth. So you'll remember in chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, I decided this for myself not to come to you again in sorrow. Now, when you look at that, but what he says there, that doesn't sound like that first visit that we read in Acts 18 where they all got converted and first received Christ. It, it, it implied, chapter 2, verse 1 is implying that there was some other visit that he had to them where it was very sorrowful. In fact, um, he elaborates a little bit elsewhere in the book that there was someone who stood up to oppose him, and Paul had to withdraw rather quickly as a result of this opposition he encountered there on his second visit. And it was really sad because the congregation didn't do anything about this person who was opposing Paul. And so he withdrew. Paul seems to refer to this second visit in chapter 13 and verse 2 where we are this morning where he refers to the second time that he was among them. So that means that the next visit that he intends to pay to them will indeed be his third visit. Now what's he going to do when he gets there? Well, the next line helps us to answer that question. Look at verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, you're going to recognize that line as a virtual quotation from what we just heard read in the Old Testament reading this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 19. 
in verse 15. Let me read that to you, that Old, text, Old Testament text to you again. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, here's the question. Why would Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, abruptly quote from Deuteronomy 19? Now, some people, some commentators say that it's because Paul wishes to cite his three visits to Corinth figuratively as witnesses against the Corinthians' misconduct. It's an old interpretation. Three visits, three witnesses. That's going to prove that you are guilty of uh, opposition and false teaching. And so it's as if his coming there three times were like a symbolic fulfillment of the two or three witnesses that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 19. So on this view, his upcoming third visit would be his third and decisive witness against the troublemakers in Corinth. That's how that interpretation has it. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that Paul's first visit was not a witness to the Corinthian misconduct, but the founding visit when he first preached to them and they believed the gospel. He was there that first visit to evangelize them, and during that visit... Um, not, not to gather evidence against them. So there's actually no evidence. If you go back and look at Acts chapter 18, or really even in 1 Corinthians, of this kind of confrontation occurring during his first visit. Also, his upcoming third visit is not to gather evidence, but to confront them in a way that suggests that the evidence really is already in against them. Also, if Paul were citing his visits at the, as the required three witnesses to establish a matter, he would actually be doing something that undermines the actual teaching of Deuteronomy 19. What does Deuteronomy 19 say? It, Deuteronomy 19 requires two or three witnesses to establish any accusation of wrongdoing. If Paul were putting his three trips as three witnesses, he would be putting himself forward as the only witness against them and twisting the text to make his singular witness to count three times. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is not distorting the message of Deuteronomy 19.15. He knows what the text means. He's not trying to bend it to fit the text to his purpose. On the contrary, he invokes Deuteronomy 19.15 for the same reason that it's invoked elsewhere in the New Testament. So this is not the only time Deuteronomy 19 is quoted in the New Testament. We, we see it in Matthew chapter 18, in that famous passage on church discipline. We see it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 19, in the famous passage about elders who are disciplined. Actually, the same process that applies to every other believer in the church would apply to an elder who has sinned and needs to be confronted. And then also in John chapter 8, in verse 17. You look at these texts, and you'll see them, that they're dealing with settings of church discipline or when some other setting where rules of evidence would apply to settle some kind of a public dispute. That's what Paul is doing here in his citation of Deuteronomy 19.15. He's, he's citing it to announce that when he gets to Corinth for his third visit, he's going to call together an official proceeding within the church to settle things once and for all with those in the church who persist in their rebellion. In verse 2, Paul says that he will not spare any of the troublemakers 
from this confrontation. Now, what is the point of Deuteronomy 19.15? How does it inform the practice of corrective discipline within a church? To answer that question, we have to think a little bit about what the Deuteronomy text means and then bring that over into Paul's use of it here. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19 prohibited anyone from being convicted of a crime simply on the basis of an accusation. There always needed to be at least two or three witnesses to confirm any allegation. Why is that? If people could be convicted of guilt on the basis of one witness, then anyone accused of anything would automatically be guilty simply on the basis of the accusation alone, especially if they are bearing witness, claiming to bear witness to what happened. Now, there, while there would certainly be some valid accusations on, on a one-witness standard, that one-witness rule would incentivize false accusations and would also incentivize prejudice. So imagine for a minute that it's not, it's not 2022 right now, but it's 1922. And we're not living in 2022 Louisville, but we're living in the Jim Crow South. A white woman turns up. She's not married, uh, but she turns up pregnant. It's a great scandal in the community. She doesn't want to reveal who the actual father is because she loves him and wants to protect him and her reputation. So she decides, she decides to accuse a black man in the community of sexually assaulting her. This is uh, roughly the plot of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it's a little bit different, but kind of a similar situation. What happens next if a person can be convicted on the basis of one witness in that scenario? Play it out in the courtroom. On one side, you have... A white woman telling a tearful story to a white jury. On the other side, you have a black man saying that she's lying and he never touched her. What's a jury going to do if, if they just have a one witness standard, just an accusation? They're going to resort likely to their prejudices. They're going to start trying to figure out who they like better, who they think is more predisposed to lie than to tell the truth, who they would rather see disgraced or condemned in the community. On the basis of her testimony alone, they won't know what actually happened. They will simply resort to their prejudices, whatever they may be. And in that setting, it's more likely than not that, he's, that the accused man is a dead man walking. The law of Moses is giving us, providing for us, a principle by which we can avoid those kinds of travesties of justice. It permits one person to make an accusation, and then it calls on the judges of Israel to take that accusation seriously. You don't ignore the accusation. You take the accusation seriously, and then you hold a formal proceeding. And then the accused is not to be treated as guilty simply for being accused. Right? Isn't that what Deuteronomy 19 says? He's not guilty just because he's accused. In other words, he has to be treated as Innocent until what? Proven guilty. You've heard of that principle before. That comes from the Bible. Okay, that did, America didn't make that up. Okay, that's a part of our Christian heritage. What does it take to prove guilt? It takes witnesses who can confirm by their own eyes and ears that they saw or heard what happened. What happens in situations in which a real crime has been committed, but there's no witnesses? 
what do you do then? All you have is a he said, she said kind of a situation. In that case, this is why we had the Deuteronomy text read out loud. Deuteronomy says that the judges shall investigate thoroughly to see if there's any other evidence to decide the matter. Deuteronomy 19.18. So you can bring other evidence to bear on the situation that might act as witnesses either for or against the prosecution. And if the guy says, I never touched her, but then the DNA test says, uh, uh, says that he's the father, well, you know he's lying about something. In other words, you can have other evidence in as, as witnesses here. But absent witnesses or other dispositive evidence, the Mosaic law says that the accused are to be treated as innocent until proven guilty. So the American legal tradition of due process is built on this principle from biblical law. It's verboten in our system to condemn anyone as guilty based on a mere accusation or a single witness. We just, we just don't do that. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus' crucifixion was such a great travesty was because it defied Deuteronomy 19. Instead of multiple witnesses coming forward to confirm Jesus' guilt, what happened? You know what happened. Mark chapter 14, 50, verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The whole trial is driven by the prejudice of the Jewish religious leaders against Jesus. They weren't making an objective inquiry at Jesus' trial. They hated him. They wanted him condemned, and they enlisted false witnesses to get it done. But even then, their false witnesses, they couldn't get their stories straight. So what do they do? They ignore the law of Moses and due process and the rules of evidence, and they kill him anyway. All of it based on their prejudice against Jesus. The law of Moses is designed to prevent those kinds of travesties from happening. But if you set aside due process and the rules of evidence, you are not going to get justice, but you're going to get travesties of justice. You're going to convict and condemn a lot of innocent people. You might convict some guilty people too. That will happen. But you'll also condemn some innocent people, which is just an intolerable travesty. This is why when you hear in the news that someone in some high-profile case has been shot and the alleged suspect is a person from a certain race, you aren't allowed to conclude that the suspect is guilty just based on your knowledge of that person's race. If you hear a report about someone being shot and the one who pulled the trigger was a police officer of a certain race, you're not allowed to conclude that the officer is guilty of murder based merely on your knowledge that he's a police officer or his color. If you're willing to condemn someone based merely on the allegation and your knowledge of their skin color or whether or not they're a police officer, that's not justice at work in your heart. That's prejudice at work in your heart. And the law of Moses, and now 1 Corinthians 13, it's exposing that. Justice is concerned with witnesses, facts, evidence, due process. Prejudice and partiality are concerned with identity traits of the accused and of the victim. Do I like the person who's accused or not? Do I like the person who is, is the victim or not? 
And you know what the Bible says about that kind of thinking, James 2.9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. When Paul invokes the principle from Deuteronomy 19 in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says this whole thing has to be applied to sinning elders, he says, in the presence of God and of, the, of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. We don't condemn people based merely on allegations and whatever our prejudices are. We don't ignore allegations based merely on what our prejudices are or who, who we happen to be partial to. We take the allegations seriously and then we take the process seriously. We don't base it on partiality. That's not how God taught us to do things. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If you're willing to deal out death and judgment based merely on accusations and prejudices, you're going to end up justifying a lot of wicked people and condemning a lot of righteous people. And you will be committing something that the Lord considers to be an abomination. So God's people can't have anything to do with that. So what's, why am I going through all of this background? Well, it's because you need to understand that the New Testament takes the rules of evidence and due process from Deuteronomy 19 and makes it the basis for how the church is supposed to adjudicate accusations of sin within a congregation. You can see this explicitly in Matthew 18, 15 through 18. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, 19 through 21, and then, of course, our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. It, it calls for a process that takes seriously every accusation but then protects the reputation of the accused through the process. So I encourage you to go look at our church constitution. Okay? The, the constitution of this church calls for us to follow this process that's outlined in Matthew 18 when dealing with a sinning brother or a sister. That means if somebody sins against you, you're supposed to go to them first in private and do all that you can to settle things with that person in private. If they sin against you, not some public notorious sin, but somebody sins against you. If they don't listen to you, then you take along, what does it say? One or two witnesses who will serve as witnesses, and they can either be a witness to the alleged sin, or they can serve as witnesses to the confrontation where it might come out what really happened and they, they witnessed uh, maybe a confession or something like that. If after that confrontation, if that, that person still refuses to repent, then on the basis of witnesses having established the matter, you can take the matter to the whole church, Matthew 18 says. And if the brother still doesn't repent after being encouraged to do so by the congregation, then you remove that person from the church. So these steps for church discipline are based in part on Deuteronomy 19.15, and they, and they ensure that charges of sin are taken seriously and that reputations are protected as the accused are treated as innocent until proven guilty by multiple witnesses or evidence. So it means, just practically for you, if you sin against your brother, you're supposed to be assured that he's not going to go around and gossip about you. That's not how a person deals with you when you've sinned against them. 
He's going to come to you in private and try to resolve things. So, you know, a lot of us think of, you know, the, the steps in Matthew 18 is this big church discipline process. Really, the first step is just the normal kind of interaction we should be having with one another when we, when we sin against each other. We go to each other in private. The, and the norm is that we just resolve things, right? I mean, we resolve things in private, and it doesn't go anywhere. And, and we just count on each other, not gossiping about one another uh, as we work through conflicts, with, with one another. So your brother is supposed to come to you in private and resolve things, and it means that if you're falsely accused of something, you're not going to be condemned and excommunicated on the basis of a simple accusation alone. There's going to have to be a process, witnesses, evidence to prove the case before it would ever go before the church. So you, you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, when people were having disputes in the church and they were going to the secular courts to resolve them, you remember that? Paul says, aren't you competent to constitute the least law courts? In other words, you, should, you have everything you need to work out these conflicts within the assembly. So there's not supposed to be any kangaroo courts in the church. On the contrary, it's supposed to be orderly, due process, reason, evidence, impartiality. Verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. The wording of this sentence is, is kind of strange in English, and that probably reflects the fact that it's a little strange in, in Greek. Uh, maybe a smoother translation would go like this. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now warn you again while absent to those of you who sinned previously and now to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare any of you who persist in sin. Paul has given them every opportunity to respond to warnings. Technically, what we're doing as a church when we discipline someone, it's people say, what sin do you discipline for? Well, potentially anything. If you have a member who who, as long as it's an externally verifiable thing and they refuse to repent of sin, that, that's what's going to get uh, that the, person's, uh, the church's discipline involved. But Paul says he's given them every opportunity to respond to his warnings, and, they, and they, they're not repenting. Indeed, this letter is another warning, not only to those who, while he was there, uh, while he was there were sinning, but also to anybody else who's persisting in sin without repentance. He's not going to spare any of them, meaning he's going to pursue through corrective, he's going to pursue them through co corrective church discipline. He will have his witnesses ready, maybe Timothy and Titus, maybe somebody else in the congregation, but maybe even God himself will bear witness in some supernatural way. But notice he's not simply declaring the troublemakers excommunicated. Right? Paul doesn't just say, you're out, just like he didn't do that in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, he tells the congregation to do it. And here, he's not just saying you're out. He's announcing there's going to be a proceeding that involves the entire church. So he's doing this according to Deuteronomy, the law of Moses' rules of evidence, which implies that the congregation is going to be involved with this. Paul was very patient with them through three visits. Don't miss this part. Through three visits, he was very patient with them. Now he's warning them that the time is up. And I would argue that 
We need to have the same kind of an attitude with our own use of corrective church discipline. For sure, there are times when a sin is so public and notorious and destructive that a church would have to move very, very quickly towards discipline and maybe even excommunication. Ordinarily, though, the path of wisdom is a path of patience and forbearance with struggling sinners. We do not want to have a hair trigger with church discipline. It ought to be something we do after all avenues of repentance and renewal have been decisively rejected. So this is the process, in a nutshell, of discipline that Paul lays out. The second thing that he gives us is the reason for discipline. And I want you to notice here that this is, this is a very personal um, reason here that's related to his, his, his engagement with the Corinthians themselves. Because he says in verse 3, everybody look at verse 3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Now, the first part of verse 3 is the end of the sentence that was begun in verse 2. So we have to pick up from verse 2 to get the sense of this. Paul is saying, you know, I warned you that if I come again, I will not spare the ones who persist in sin. Here's why. Because you're seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me. I'm not going to spare because you want proof, basically, that I'm an apostle. Now, this is referring to the fact that there are still some people raising questions about Paul's apostolic integrity. They did not accept that Christ himself was speaking through Paul and giving authority to Paul. And so Paul says, you want proof? I'll give you proof. You buckle up your chin strap because I'm not going to spare any of you who persist in rebellion. Will God bear witness through signs and wonders when Paul arrives to start judicial proceedings against the unrepentant? I don't know. What I do know is that Paul says that they're about to get all the proof that they need about his authority and apostleship when he arrives. This thing is going down. There's nothing that they can do to stop this except for repentance. And so he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Which I think is Paul's way of saying, you're, you're accustomed to God working powerfully among you. In fact, you're kind of known for boasting about it. He's about to show himself powerful among you again when I get there. So they want Paul to prove he is who he says he is, and it's all it's all because they still haven't learned yet to discern the true signs of an apostle. The true signs of an apostle are not flashy displays of eloquence or power, but of faithfulness and suffering. He's, he, really, they shouldn't be asking for more proof like this, because he's given them all the proof that they should need. But that's not the kind of proof they want. Suffering, faithfulness, and hardship. One commentator says it this way, they've demanded proof that Paul is sufficient for his task as an apostle, but Paul will turn the tables on them and demand proof that they are truly in the faith. The important question is not whether Christ is speaking in Paul, but whether Christ is living in them. And indeed, we're going to see next time that Paul's going to tell them to examine themselves, prove themselves whether or not they are in the faith. But before that, he simply reminds them that Christ is not weak among them, but is powerful among them. The powerful, resurrected Christ displays his power among them through the Spirit. But Paul wants them to remember that Christ himself once walked 
in weakness. Because look at verse 4. So Christ is not weak in you. He's powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So when Paul, this is another one of those cases where when Paul says we, he's talking about himself. So he means I. And so he's comparing his own ministry to Christ's ministry. He's saying that just as Christ displayed weakness in his suffering on the cross, so Paul also is displaying weakness in his suffering for the gospel. Paul's also saying that just as Christ has been raised by the power of God, so you have in Christ's ministry, you see weakness and then power, right, in the resurrection. Paul says he's going to conf- he is going to confront and overcome the troublemakers by that same powerful work of God. In other words, they've seen Paul in weakness plenty of times. Guess what, guess what that weakness is going to be followed by? Powerful display of God's power when he gets there. Christ had weakness and power. Paul says, you saw me in weakness. Now you're going to see me in power. When I get there. So he gives us, you know, we, we talked about this last time, but, you know, Paul talks about the kinds of things that he does in his ministry in uh, Romans 15, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, even though the Corinthians see a lot of weakness in Paul, Paul's about to show them the other side. And the ones who have failed to repent aren't going to like the display of power when it happens. But notice what what it is they wanted proof of. They wanted proof, Paul says, that Christ speaks in me. That's what they want proof of, that Christ speaks in me. Which is really a remarkable statement all on its own. Christ speaks in me. In Paul, which means he speaks through Paul. That's that's nothing less than a reference to divine revelation. It's nothing less than the exclusive prerogative of, of prophets and apostles. So for Paul to say, Christ speaks in me, he's saying I'm a true apostle and prophet. If Christ is speaking in Paul, then to reject Paul's words and message is nothing less than rejecting the word of God itself. Back in 2007, Tony Campolo came out with a book called The Red Letter Christians, A Citizen's Guide to Faith and Politics. And the point of the book was to guide evangelicals away from certain political priorities, from the religious right, from conservative politics, to embrace so-called social justice kinds of causes. So instead of Christians prioritizing issues like uh, abortion or gay marriage or religious liberty and their, their, their political concerns, he was calling for Christians in this book, and especially evangelicals, to have more concern about abolishing capital punishment, embracing pacifism, caring for the poor, that kind of a thing. And so he titled this book Red Letter Christians for a reason, and he writes this. This is why he titled the book that. He says, by calling ourselves Red Letter Christians, we're alluding to those old versions of the Bible wherein the words of Jesus are printed in red. In adopting the name, we are saying that we are committed to living out the things that Jesus taught, end quote. He's not formally repudiating all the other letters of Scripture, the black letters of Scripture. He's just arguing that we should give interpretive priority to the red letters, the direct speech of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospels. He's arguing when you focus on those words, 
You don't get sidetracked by all these hang-ups that Paul has about marriage and family and sexuality, gender roles, those kinds of things. When you pay attention to the red letters, you focus on peace, love, equality, social justice. That's, that's the argument. Now, the problem with this is that it fundamentally misunderstands what the Bible is. You can't build a theology or a hermeneutic on a 20th century printing convention. Paul says that his words are Christ speaking through him. But it's not just Paul's words. It's, do you know what Peter says about this, in, about the Old Testament prophets? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You know, the Apostle Peter says the spirit animating the prophets of the Old Testament was the spirit of Christ speaking. Christ is speaking through all the letters of Scripture, not just the red ones. If you understand that the spirit of Christ is breathing out every syllable of this book, then you understand that, if anything, all the letters need to be colored red. We don't treat... Christ's words recorded in the Gospels as the hermeneutical control over the rest of the Bible, as if Christ's voice is somehow heard more clearly or authoritatively in those words than in the other words of the Bible. Christ is speaking to us through all of it, all of it. And we can't create a canon within a canon to evade the parts of the Bible that we just don't want to deal with. You don't have to be a red-letter Christian to slip into this. You can simply do this by tuning out the parts of Scripture that you find hard and offensive. When you do that, you're functionally very similar to the troublemakers that Paul is talking about in Corinth, who are treating Paul as if God's word wasn't really coming through him. That's not a place that any faithful Christian wants to be in. At the end of the day, Paul is threatening discipline because some of God's people had turned away from God's word. And it's the same thing for us. If we turn away from God's word because we don't want to deal with it or because we wish to suppress its message or its authority in some way in our lives, we're setting ourselves up for a fall, a fall that could put us on the business end of the church's discipline. And so for that reason, we've got to keep our Bibles and our hearts open and order our lives as if we really do believe that every word of it is from God. Psalm 18:30 says that the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all of those who take refuge in him. So if all of this is true, let me let me just wrap this up by giving you quickly um, several items of application. First thing is this, if all of this is true, you need to be a person who stands for first of all, a, be a person who stands for and heralds due process. When there is a newsworthy crime or a criminal allegation, don't be the first in line of a social media mob. There are a lot of people who don't wait for facts and evidence. They just look at identities and parties involved, and then they tailor their judgments accordingly with partiality toward their favored identity group. They do this even though really the wisest thing for, for us to do is simply to, most of the time just to reserve judgment. You don't know what you don't know, and you don't have to pretend that you do know in order to shoot off the right virtue signal. Wait. Be patient. 
See where the investigation and due process lead to. So first of all, just be a person who cares about these kinds of things. Second thing, don't gossip about your brother or sister in Christ. If you have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, you go to them privately and you work it out. Keep the circle of confidants as small as possible so, so as to protect the reputation of your brother or sister in Christ. You may, the thing you feel sinned against about, you may be wrong about. How terrible to go off and, and start reporting false things and then find out that your accusation was, was wrong. Or you may be right about them. How do you want to be treated when you sin against someone? Do you want the person you sinned against to go tell everybody? Or would you appreciate them coming and dealing with, with you in private? So treat them the way that you would want to be treated when somebody is upset with you. Third thing, don't be so conflict-averse that you never work things out with your brother or your sister. Proverbs 27, verses 5 to 6 says this, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So listen, we don't need to walk around with like a chip on our shoulder, wait for somebody to knock it off so we can get in their grill about whatever thing that irritates us. Okay, there, there's something in the Bible about forbearance, right? It, we need to forbear with one another's faults. We don't need to be pointing out everything about everybody all the time. That is not what I'm arguing for here. But I, what I'm saying, though, is that if, if somebody sins against you and, and the relationship is hindered to a point where you can't, you can't trust them anymore. You can't be with them anymore. The relationship is hindered. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And in other words, sometimes you've got a, you have a duty to bring that conflict to light. You just have to do that. Psalm 141.5, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is an oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it. And so here's the other side of this. You've got a duty sometimes to bring the confrontation. You've got a duty sometimes to receive the confrontation. Which means you, you've got to have a heart that's open to the fact that sometimes you might sin against somebody. Sometimes you might do it and not even realize it. Sometimes you know perfectly well what you're doing. And you've got to be humble enough as a Christian for somebody to come to you and to bring that to light and then take appropriate action to, to turn from that. So, so don't be so conflict-averse that you never work things out. Fourth thing, be ready to forgive when your brother repents. After Jesus talks about church discipline in Matthew 18, Peter asks him, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against me? And you remember what Jesus says? Peter says up to seven times, and then Jesus says seven, 70 times seven. Now, now, the point of that is not that, okay, you forgive up to 490 times and then it's over. Okay, that's not the point. The point of it is that the well of forgiveness is never to run dry. Jesus' forgiveness towards you is a deep, deep well of unending grace. And that deep well of grace is what we are supposed to be offering to one another. So we, be we need to be ready to forgive when our brother or sister repents. Final thing. If it comes to it, as a congregation, we have to be ready to discipline wayward Christians for the purity of the church and with the hope that they will be restored. That the corrective measures of the church's discipline will draw them to repentance. We have to hope and work towards that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that we were once in the same boat that you are. The Bible says we're all sinners. And 
we are justly deserving of God's judgment because we are sinners. The Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are celebrating right now at Christmas this reality that instead of just kicking the world to the curb and throwing us all into hell, God sent his son who lived a perfect life, who died a death that we deserved, and who has now been raised up. And the Bible says the Son of God is God. So God took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And the Bible says if you will turn away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, that faith in Christ will connect you to salvation. You will be saved. And if you haven't done that, our invitation to you this morning is to repent of your sin and to believe in Christ and be saved. That's the hope of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you'd use your word to conform us to the image of Christ. Make us like him. I pray for those here who don't know you, that they would repent and believe in the gospel and be saved. I pray for us that you would make us a congregation of integrity. Father, forgive us for gossiping and for talking about things with one another we probably shouldn't even be talking about. I pray you'd make us more sensitive to the sin of gossip and slander. And Lord, I pray that you would make us more successful in dealing with one another in a great spirit of generosity and forbearance. And when there has to be confrontation, a willingness to humbly come to one another and just work things out. And I pray that the spirit of our church would be that and that we wouldn't have escalating issues of discipline all the time. But Father, I do pray you'd make us faithful that when it has to happen, that we would do it. And we would do it looking to you and looking to ourselves to protect us so that we might not stumble. So for all these things, we ask you to help us and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.